Hi, this is Gail Trotter, host of Right in D.C. We're a local D.C. show that focuses on foreign and domestic policy, national politics, and culture. Today, we're speaking with Sheila Waisaki. Sheila is a private investigator who provides clients with different investigative solutions. What fascinates me most about Sheila is she's committed to solving cold cases. You can learn more about her at SheilaWaisaki.com. You're not going to want to miss this. We'd like to recognize Make-A-Wish Foundation. Make-A-Wish America serves a unique and vital role in helping strengthen and empower children battling life-threatening medical conditions. You can learn more about them at wish.org. And we're back on Right in D.C. We're talking with Sheila Waisaki. Sheila, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm honored. Sheila is a mom PI, a mother private investigator. And I learned about Sheila from one of my favorite source materials, People Magazine, that profiled her and her story, her experience, and what compelled her to not just be a mom, but also to get interested in private investigation. And Sheila, that article was really fascinating to me. Can you tell us a little bit about your experiences that compelled you to get into private investigation? Um, back in 1980s, I went to college at Southern Methodist University, and um, I was rooming with a young lady named Angela Samoda. And unfortunately, Angela, Angie is what we called her, was murdered. And um, through that process, I worked with the police uh, while I was, you know, I dropped out of college and I worked with the police and then got married and moved away. And 20 years later, I wanted the case reopened and there were a lot of things that happened to, to make me know it was the right time. And they didn't and, arrest anybody for the murder when it occurred or soon thereafter? No, but they had a suspect and they were very firm on who the suspect was. And so I believe that they knew who murdered her. And I felt like, you know, in our system, if you have the evidence, they they told me they had the evidence. They should have arrested him and Angie would have gotten justice. That didn't happen. So 20 years later, the case was reopened. And after the case was reopened, um, I tried to get the police department to work with me. And they really didn't want to. Why so didn't they want to work with you? Well, I think that uh, going in and telling them how to do their job doesn't really work very well. <laughs> and so I went in and told them how I thought they should do their job and wasn't received very well. I now know what not to do. And that was the number one thing not to do. And so uh, they finally put me together. At first, they were telling me, okay, so they were telling me things like, we lost the file, the file was in a flood. And they kept telling me all all the reasons that the evidence wasn't there. And for whatever reason, I just kept going and going and going. And finally, I got my PI license thinking that the uh, Dallas police would just open up their arms and welcome me, you know, to work with them, which did not happen. Is it hard to get a private investigator license? 
It depends on who you ask. If you ask somebody who's a lawyer, no, it's not hard to get a license or a judge. They're, they're just like, ah, it's nothing. But I worked with uh, homicide detectives to learn the, the trade and took a test. Um, I'm dyslexic, so it was probably a little harder for me than other people. Oh, yes. And you had small children at this time as well? I did. I How did. How old were they? Um, actually my oldest was around 11 and then my other one was around seven, eight, you know, so and my oldest one was really involved in helping me study and, and going through the tests and he's the one who's going to be the attorney. So he's really into this stuff. That's great. And you had a vision. You, you just couldn't get your former roommate out of your mind. Is that correct? That is correct. So I was studying and at that time, um, doing homework still is not my thing. So I was getting through the homework process and leaning back in my bedroom, laying there, I saw a vision of Angie. She was exactly, I mean, to this day, I can see that moment. And so I knew at that second, I needed to call the Dallas Police Department. And so that's what I did. I called the Dallas Police Department, asked for the detective that I worked with originally they said nobody had called in 20 years. So nobody, and actually I'll never forget that moment. I, I, it made me cry because to think that nobody pushed for her to get justice, she deserved it. She was a great girl and you know, it could be anybody's daughter. So I felt like, you know, I have children, I have a different perspective than I did back in college, but she was my friend, but now it was a little more personal being a mom. Right. And a mother's heart is a powerful thing, right? It is a very determined thing. And you had mentioned that the police said they had identified a suspect, but it sounds like they had not released his name to the public. Did the person who ended up being identified and prosecuted for the murder. Was it the same person? Did you find that out? It was not. It was not. Um, the evidence that they had back in the 80s was um, they said that the young man that saw her last, and his name is, he and I are friends. Um, he knows what I was doing. I had dinner with him trying to get information. So he, uh, his name is Russell Buchanan. After the trial, I met with Russell because I had tried and tried to get him to confess. And he and I sat down. He told me everything that happened to him, how he's treated, what happened to him, how he's brought into the police department. And I said, well, let me tell you the flip side. So I told him about the police talking about following him and some of the things that the police did. So Russell and I had that moment where I was like, you know, I just need to ask for your forgiveness. I need to ask you to forgive me for all the things that I had done and thought. And he's such a great guy. We're good friends now. We travel together. I mean, he's just a great guy. And so who ended up being revealed as the criminal actor? He was a serial rapist. Um, we don't know if he murdered more than just my roommate, but um, his name is, I call him the Beast. His name is Donald Bess, and he is now in death row in Texas. And how did you feel once the police had charged him with this crime? 
I was actually stunned and I didn't quite believe it at that moment. And I remember calling the assistant DA, uh, who's, who was great and said, you know, are you sure you have the right guy? Because all along I've been told it's a different person. And what was their response? Well, the DNA. I mean, you can't beat that DNA. It's like one billion to one. He was actually on parole when he raped Angie from a 1977 rape. And so they had his DNA. So you took from this experience, you were empowered to get your PI license despite being dyslexic, despite having family obligations to your children. And you didn't just stop with this case. You continued to go ahead and try to help other people solve crimes that have been cold for a long time. How did you make that transition from really caring about this case about your former roommate to deciding that you wanted to help other people? Actually, when the trial was over, there was just a little blurb about it. And all of a sudden, I started getting letters. And it was letters of people, and I still get them, uh, people that have cold cases and need help. And so I thought each one of those people, every single one of them deserves to be heard. So I started returning calls and helping people. Sheila, thank you so much for joining us on Right in D.C., and we look forward to talking with you in the future. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Welcome back to Right in D.C. with Gail Trotter. We're excited to have joining us today Aparna Mather, who is a resident scholar in economic policy studies at the American Enterprise Institute right here in Washington, D.C. Aparna, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Gail. This new administration has really kind of tapped into a lot of Americans' frustration that a lot of the manufacturing jobs have gone overseas, and they haven't been replaced with higher-skilled, higher-technological type of jobs. I think we've seen a lot of public statements and information out there from the top CEOs of companies, including Tim Cook of Apple, trying to explain how Americans find ourselves in this situation. What has Tim Cook said about the reasons for why we have lost these manufacturing jobs? That's a great example because Tim Cook, you know, he was interviewed, uh, I think, a year back, and he basically said, look, the reason we're not producing anymore in the U.S. is because we're not finding people with the right skills. And, you know, there must be multiple other factors. But he did talk about the fact that we we have what we call the skills gap. And what is the skills gap? The skills gap is essentially this idea that there are companies out there who are looking for people with the right skills to put into these manufacturing jobs, and they're not finding them. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, that's not real. You know, the skills gap is not real. If companies wanted to hire people, they would just offer higher wages. But actually, if you look at, you know, surveys of these companies, they're saying, you know, we're willing to offer people higher wages, but we're still not finding people who have exactly the right skills to take on these jobs. And I think what's happened in manufacturing is that there's been a shift towards really high-skill jobs. There was a time when manufacturing was literally all about working with your hands. 
and you know operating machinery and so on and now there's been a shift to higher value added and higher skilled work which means having the ability to use computers having the ability to operate a robot having the ability to sort of work with the new machines rather than sort of being a substitute for a new machine. And the fact is the people are not investing in those skills. There are a lot of people out there who are not investing in STEM education. There are a lot of people out there. And it's not just about, you know, going to college and getting that degree in math or science or computing. It's actually about having the experience of working at those jobs with those machines, you know, being able to figure out code, whether it's, you know, programming, whether it's electrical engineering, whatever it is, you know, those skills are actually lacking. And what's interesting to me is that we have all this talk about getting jobs back from overseas, when the real issue is we have, we have about 322,000 vacancies. The most recent data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics shows that we have 322,000 job openings in manufacturing today that employers are saying, you know, we have these jobs available, come and work for us, and we still can't find people. So, so it's not so much to me about, oh, can, you know, will Carrier keep 1,000 jobs in the U.S. or will Sprint promise to create, you know, whatever jobs it's planning to create in the U.S. It's literally saying we have jobs, you know, we have employers who are ready to hire and we can't find the people to do it. Should you need a college degree to get a manufacturing job? Is I mean, plenty of people don't, they don't exactly. like school, they, they want to get out there, they want to work, they want to start being productive members of society and they see college as a complete waste of time. So we have these CEOs out there saying we have a skill gap and, you know, yeah. like you were talking about going to college and getting math science degrees, does that need to be a prerequisite for having these That's jobs? That's absolutely right. You don't need them. And in fact, what a lot of manufacturing employers will tell you is that, you know, it's great. Okay, you went to high school or, you you know, you, you, you're you even in ninth grade or whatever. Come to our firms. We'll offer you paid apprenticeship programs. There are, there are many states that are offering these programs. South Carolina is a great example of that. It's a lot of initiative at the local level, uh, at the state level as well, where community colleges and high schools are tying up with these employers. And what these companies are doing is they're saying... Come and work for us. You know, we'll teach you. We'll give you a two-year training. Uh, we'll pay you during that training. So you're not graduating with a lot of debt like you would in a regular college degree. You know, you do four years of college, you have a massive amount of student debt, and you still don't have the skills that these people need. And instead of that, you're saying, okay, you know, we'll give you apprenticeships. We'll give you paid apprenticeships. Come and work for us. Um, at the end of those two years, we, you will have what we need and we will hire you. And I think that's a great option for a lot of young workers today who are so undecided about, is the four-year college degree really worth it for me? And we're seeing how the youth, you know, there's tremendous youth unemployment. People are graduating. They don't have jobs. To me, this option of working directly with an employer, learning skills on the job, I think is hugely beneficial. And I think we should be promoting it a lot around the country. You're right in D.C. with Gail Trotter. Today, I'm very honored to be with His Excellency, Ambassador Altador of Haiti. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. My aim with this interview, in part, is to bring Haitian culture and history to people who may not be very familiar with sure. it. I don't think a lot of people know that Haiti was the first black-led government in the New World or 
really around the world. Could you tell a little bit about the history? Well, uh, Haiti became independent in 1804, and a number of former slaves got together and had decided that they would not be chained into slavery anymore. So they fought and actually defeated Napoleon's army. Uh, and Napoleon was very hard to defeat. Exactly, right? right? He wasn't uh, a pusher. To a point where the the defeat by Napoleon by the uh, of Napoleon by the slaves of Haiti uh, enabled the U.S. to actually purchase a good chunk of land here. So the whole thing about the Louisiana Purchase, Haiti cannot make that happen because they were running out of money. They were they were running out of resources. So Haiti made that happen. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually one of the biggest real estate deals in the world in right. terms of how. Uh, 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 inexpensive it was for the U.S. to actually purchase. And also keep in mind that Haiti also played a significant role in the aftermath of its independence uh, towards freedom movement around the region. So one of the first measures by the Haitian liberators, they offered to actually purchase the freedom of slaves in other countries around the region uh, to a point where any slaves who actually fled and landed in Haiti, they were by default free people. And almost there was a war between Haiti and England over this issue because a number of slaves actually fled what is now Jamaica and came to the shores of Haiti. And the masters at the time insisted that Haiti return them. And on the principle of freedom, Haiti said, no, we would not allow anybody to return to slavery. So we ended up actually keeping these folks. But uh, at some point, there was a law that enabled anybody who were into slavery, once they came to Haiti, they became Haitian citizens, or the Haitians would actually purchase their freedom if necessary. We saw a beautiful photograph outside on the wall of the embassy, the outside wall of the embassy, of some of these heroes that you're talking about. And being a woman, my eye was drawn to some of the women in the (laughs) photograph. Could you tell us a little bit about the women who were part of the movement to free Haiti from the Well, women played a significant role in Haiti's independence. In fact, there was even a a women's army at some point uh, who actually fought underground. And uh, not only that, alongside their husband, alongside brothers and, and fathers, they played a significant role in keeping troops together, in, in doing a number of things that the men on their own would not have been able to do. So women were not just instrumental in terms of Haiti's uh, freedom, they actually were at the core of, of what happened in terms of Haiti becoming a free country. So Haiti has a proud history of freedom and just a long history of trying to espouse those ideas. That's right. Thank you so much, Your Excellency, for speaking with me. This is Gail Trotter with Right in D.C., and I want to thank you for your time. Thank you, Gail, for, for making time to come to the embassy. Thank you for making time to actually discuss Haiti. Thank you again. This is Gail Trotter, host of Right in D.C. Thank you.